Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of August 9th, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, and happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, Research and Polling Director for the Texas Politics Project, located here in Austin but in a different location, correct? Oh, that's true, yes, but very close. <laughs> but very close, yes. In a, in, a, in a bunker from Austin, is that? <laughs> yes. We are in our respective bunkers, uh, banished by the resurgent Delta variant. Actually, I don't think we ever really left the bunkers very no, much, even really. during the pleasant interview. I stuck, I stuck my head out, but it was full of COVID out there, and now I'm so back. I yanked it back in. <laughs> So, Josh, we spent the podcast last week talking about the resurgence of the coronavirus as, as the Delta variant, the Delta variant uh, spread. And in the end, the conversation, you know, was very much about how shot through with politics the response was. And, you know, we ultimately wanted to put off discussion of the legislature to this week. But I think ultimately the the situation with the Delta variant has continued you know, to, to worsen and and to become, you know, more and even more intensely political, you know, which is saying something given how much we dwelled last week on the politics of the situation, right? I mean, a lot's happened since last week though, right? Yeah, I mean yes. That's <laughs> that's correct. You know, I mean I think the one thing, I mean, at least here where we are, as you already brought up, you know, we're in Austin. Austin's in Travis County, Texas, and it doesn't really matter right now for the most part what county you're in you know, the COVID is resurgent, but at least, you know, here over the weekend, you know, we got warnings, you know, in no uncertain terms from Travis County that the situation here is quote unquote dire. That was the word that they used, you know, and basically asking yeah. people to, you know, really make, make a lot more efforts to sort of avoid spreading the virus, whether by, you know, wearing masks, not going places, not having gatherings. I mean, essentially, you know, the message from the county, and I think this is true in a lot of places in Texas, is that, that, you know, this is basically as bad as it's ever been. And I think, you know, there's sort of something that's shooting through this that I, I feel like, you know, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but we kind of forget it was, you know, I mean, you know, as, as you said, you know, this discussion has become so political. There's just a brass tacks factual thing about this that we've kind of sort of set aside as coming back to Vogue here, which is like, our hospitals only have so much capacity. Yeah. And that was the thing at the beginning of the virus. People were talking about, you know, is the virus, is it, is it going to kill people? How many people is going to kill? And, you know, a lot of, I think, smart people raised their hand and said, hey, look, it might not kill a lot of people. It may, it may not, depends on what we do. But a lot of our smart people said, but like our hospital system can't handle this inflow of people. And that's kind of been what the focus has right. sort of turned to, I think, in the last maybe like five to seven days is about, you know, watching hospital capacity shrink and shrink and shrink. And that's something I think is, you know. Yeah. Not it, to, and not to be crass. Well, you know, but, you know, whether people are dying or they're just very sick and requiring care, hospital capacity is an important tripwire here. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is what's happening is that, you know, when we talk about the politics, I mean, the politics are abstract, right? I mean, we're talking about applying principles of freedom and liberty and stuff to sort of individual you know, behaviors that in America feel very individual in our own right. 
and that's all fine when we're, you know, and again, when people are taking vaccines and it's hot back summer and it's like, is it safe to do this or not? You know, it's another thing when, you know, like your father is putting off his surgery now because we're not having elective surgeries, right? Or, you know, we're talking about the fact that there are no ICU beds available in this many hospitals in your region, right? Or, and I think the other thing that's going to come up, we'll talk about this probably a little bit, or that we're about to send kids back to school. And, you know, we really, we don't have a handle on this. And so I think that sort of makes it a little bit more salient, you know, just, yeah. I mean, I think all that makes it, you know, significantly more salient for people, not to mention just the general thing was, even if you are just thinking about like, what is it safe or unsafe to do? And I mean, you and I've talked about this, there's a certain disappointment at this point that, you know, we had a, this brief window to start imagining a better future. And now it feels like we're, we're backsliding. And I think that's, you know, causing a lot of consternation out there for a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, don't want to slide too immediately into the frustration with the level of public discourse about this because we'll get to it inevitably. But the objective counts such as we have right now are all still pretty negative. I mean, a week ago we were talking about, you know, the steep slope of increases in the seven-day average of new cases, both new confirmed cases, new probable cases, the two measures we get from the state. And those have continued to rise, to my eye, pretty unabated. Mm-hmm. through yesterday, allowing for, you know, we talk about seven-day averages because, Monday, you know, there's there's always a lull and a kind of a lag in reporting over weekends. Um, That's just more accurate. I mean, yeah, averages and, yeah. are better than measures, single right. measures. Social you science know, tip of the day. And, and frankly, when we talked last time, I, the number of deaths had not started to rise. And in fact, and there's, again, there's a lag in reporting of deaths. Um, that too started to rise in the increase. Now, you know, also, I guess in the interim, you know, local authorities have begun defying, you know, the, the, the orders from Governor Abbott that we talked about a lot last week that prohibited local political authorities like cities, counties, school boards from instituting mask requirements. And a lot of a lot has happened here just in the last 24 day. hours, yeah. right? the last day in which, you know, two of the larger school districts in the state, Austin and Dallas ISDs, have both effectively denied, you know, uh, defied the governor's orders and and voted to institute some degree of mask requirements for students in public schools. And, and it looks like Harris County is probably going to do yeah, so. Pretty I, soon, yeah, everyone. So. I, th- I think yeah, the general expectation is that Harris County will follow. And then there have been lawsuits by nonprofits, and as of this morning, San Antonio Independent School District, you know, looking for relief. You know, in a way, this is getting ahead of I think the. Uh, an attempt by the governor to strike back in some way with Florida looming out there, which we can talk about in a minute, um, suing, you know, uh, filing in court for relief from any, any retaliation from the governor and, and, you know, defending their own position, you know, and, and I, you know, just to say, you know, and I mentioned, you know, I think, I think some of the defensiveness there is that there are school districts that were doing this beginning to implement this in, in Florida in, in defiance of a very similar order by the governor, by the Republican governor there, Ron DeSantis. And the governor has pushed back in all kinds of ways, threatening to find superintendents, you know, providing money for, you know, kids in districts that do this to go to other, to go get vouchers to go to private schools, which is like perhaps the most <laughs> unlikely return of the voucher idea. Right. You know, it's, it's a very minor note given the scale of things going on, but I want to flag that, Oh, so, you know, the return of vouchers, you know, right. who'd have right. thunk it, you know, and all this is happening as Texas has become very prominent in national coverage of the COVID surge. 
Right. I think I saw that, you know, Texas and, and Florida basically account for about a third of all the new COVID cases that, that we've been recording over this, you know, over this most recent surge. Right. Yeah, you know, part of that is going to be population, but it certainly, but it, but also certainly suggests that. Well, and you say part of that's population. It's still a lot of people. It's still a lot and, of people, <laughs> and it's still bigger than there. They do not constitute a third of the population in the United States. Right. <laughs> but you know, to be you know, to be at least nominally fair there. Um, but you know, and and I think the national coverage of this, you know, unfortunately, just inevitably gets us back to the politics. But first, you know, we are talking about the schools. You know, you have, you know, somebody, you know, you're, you're a father. I'm yeah. wondering what you're, what you have to share about like how this unfolded in I, Austin ISD. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, you know, Austin ISD is probably not a representative school district of the state as a whole, as sure. you can imagine, you know, uh, although I'm sure it's a lot more like, you know, Dallas ISD and probably like, uh, you know, I think it's Houston ISD actually, right? It's HISD, South East Harris County. But, you know, I mean, you can kind of see, I mean, I think what I've been super focused on generally around a lot of this is the nature of the various political communications. I mean, again, you know, you and I work at UT, I've got a child in AISD and watching these different organizations try to try to manage the uncertainty of this situation has been, you know, it's been hard to watch. And it's not even, you know, again, I'm a very, you know, I look at this and I think, boy, this is hard. I mean, you know, you look at these sorts of emails and I always think, what is the thing that you would bold in this communicative email so that people know this is the thing if you read nothing else? And it's hard not to look at the communications that you're getting these. And I think a lot of people are getting communications like this, whether parents, employers, whatever, from employers, whoever. And you're like, boy, you could bold about seven things in here because there's it's just so unclear. And so AISD went from basically saying, hey, you know, they did, they did a pulse survey and they sort of said, you know, are you planning to wear masks? And I think 80% district-wide of parents said they were going to send their children to school with masks. Uh, and then basically, you know, sent out kind of an email over the weekend saying, Hey, look, we know this is looking bad. We're doing our best. We've got some restrictions. And then rumbling started happening around Monday that, well, maybe we're just going to do this. And I think what probably gave the, the school districts a little bit of a push, I think was actually some of the actions of like, you know, like, like in, in Harris County when Sylvester Turner was going to require employees to wear masks. When you start to start, I think, see that pushback from some of the big counties in various parts, the, you know, I think that gave a little bit more courage to some of the school districts to say, you know, is the governor really going to go out and basically die on a hill where he says, no, I'm going to force kids to go to school as they are required to do, and I'm going to force them to do so without allowing the schools to keep them safe. Ultimately, like, and to me, that's kind of, I mean, like, again, that's sort of a, a stylized version, but it is a reflection of the fact that this conversation is really politically kind of getting away from the governor. Oh, I don't, I would like to say yeah. a little bit, but I kind of, I really mean a lot. Yeah. I mean, I want, yeah, I want to get to that. I mean, I, you know, and I think, you know, this is a good place to insert that, you know, there is an emergency, you know, I mean, you know, Governor Abbott's prohibition on the local authorities from having the option of requiring masks, you know, was based on you know, the power that he derives from, you know, the, the emergency powers provisions in the, in, in statute and the emerging counter argument that we've heard from a few places. I mean, I think most publicly anyway, from a state rep, but not Senator. running for reelection, John Turner from the North Texas area is that the governor simply overstepped the statute on emergency powers in his executive order, that that executive order is about a response to an emergency not about limiting the response of local entities to right. emergencies. And, you know, uh, uh, Representative Turner, we both know, is, you know, smart guy and and gets in front of, you know, the counter argument in that piece in the Dallas Morning News. And he's not, 
Yeah. You know, he's not the only saying, one making you know, that look, argument. Yes, his powers have been upheld previously in response to challenges to his emergency powers that frankly came from the right, as I recall. Right. But this is not really a response. This is limiting the the response response, of other political entities. And it, it's, you know, so it's at least arguable. Well, I mean, it's arguable, but it's very hard to argue. I mean, I mean, the the logic that that is laid out is pretty clear, which is, you know, the disaster declaration after 1975, I think is what it's called, right? Basically says, gives the governor the power to, to declare a disaster and then therefore suspend local laws if that is what he needs to do so as to address the disaster. The idea then that he would declare a disaster to then prohibit local entities from addressing the disaster is pretty, I don't even want, I wouldn't even say it's tortured logic. It's, it's. Yeah. It It doesn't really, yeah. It doesn't pass a very logic or ends means kind of test. And my, and my guess is, is that, you know, most of the, the legal counsel for the cities, the legal counsel for the ISDs are probably kind of coming to similar conclusions here because I think, you know, and look, you know, with the, with the uh, superintendent of the Austin independent school district said, it's like, look, I can't have one kid die because I didn't do what I think I should do. Yeah. And again, setting aside statute, everything else. I mean, that's, that's kind of where this political argument is going. If the governor really wants to keep pushing this idea that you know we're just basically going to keep living life as if this isn't happening, and if well, you know, you, know, you mentioned the, you know the politics of this being abstract, I, you know, I, you've said that a couple times in conversation, and there's something you know, and the thing is, you know, some of the politics are very abstract. Right? Well, the politics, you know, the, well, the, the, the justification, you know, of, yeah. you know, personal liberty in that it is pretty abstract. Well, that's the thing. The, the politics that he's relying on here, you know, again, we'll yeah. come back to this to the basically because of where the criticism is coming from, which is the criticism that Abbott's receiving. And I'll just put this out here as a bracket. Absent a Democratic challenger for governor is coming mostly from the right. And the argument is that Abbott has gone too far in suspending Texans liberties. And, you know, he's made very clear that he's not going to do that again. Now, look, I mean, one thing that we talk about on this podcast, and, you know, I'll mention again is, you know, when you talk about public opinion on any issue, and then you bring children into it, it's two different issues. Yeah. It's not the same thing. And so this sort of abstract idea of, you know, my freedom not to wear a mask, you know, or not to be forced to wear a mask somewhere is all well and good, except for the fact that it really doesn't hold up when you talk about the practicality of, you know, basically kids who are compulsed to go to school, many of whom are ineligible to be vaccinated, right? And are already required actually to be vaccinated for multiple things and can be told what to wear and not to wear, basically all for the safety and educational environment of the children. So this is like a place in which we accept the fact that kids don't have these rights. Right. And while there may not be FDA, you know, you know, and, and while, you know, a drug that doesn't have final FDA approval, you know, sure. is, is almost certainly a bridge too far. It's it really is hard to make the argument that wearing a mask is somehow materially different from, you know, not being able to wear a t-shirt with obscenities or, a, yeah. you know, a dress skirt length or, you know, whatever, all these kinds or, of things. Or, or whatever, or a hairstyle that they used to. Yeah. Have. That happened we, in schools all the time. So, well, and, and just, just real quick, I mean, on that, I mean, you know, and we have uh, questions we've asked throughout the pandemic for the last over a year about people's adherence to social distancing measures. And for the most part at the height of the pandemic, you know, I, I would say, when we were in a stage five situation, like for example, like we are now, we were seeing upwards of 80% of Republicans saying that they were wearing a mask when they left their house. And it was right. more about 90 to 95% of Democrats. But ultimately this idea that there is, you know, an unwillingness 
even amongst, you know, some partisans, you know, to not wear masks is, is frankly stupid. And then further, you know, we don't have, you know, again, there, there are a lot of partisan differences. It's, they're biological. We all have noses. We all have mouths. Nobody likes wearing a mask. Ultimately, it's not as though somebody is like, you know, it's not as though some group of people, it's just naturally worse than for other people. Nobody likes this, but we've clearly accepted no, it's, that it's this is part of it. It's worse if you wear glasses. It is. Okay. We both work. That's, <laughs> that is true. But anyway, this is just to say it's, it's, you know, it's taking this abstract principle and it's leading to policy that, you know, again, it's like, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And again, I wouldn't want to be in a position where I was trying to argue that this is somehow good for children. Yeah. And I, and I think that this is another area where the kind of the ambient media coverage is not helping, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the folks, you know, team Abbott, frankly, let's just call it that, you know, when the news is full of, you know, children's hospitals also reaching capacity, increased rates among children. And you can talk about what the chances are that the numbers are relatively small, but it's, you know, we were talking about this earlier when you're, you know, what you're really doing is banking on the trade-offs here. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the, you know, those who are, you know, willing to really, you know, go to the wall on saying you shouldn't have to wear a mask and you shouldn't have to engage in public health measures if you don't want to, which is really what the end of the argument ultimately is, mm-hmm. are trading off, you know, from a, from an authority perspective and saying, rather than provide a public health example, I'm going to take that path. And I'm willing to accept the fact that there's going to be an increase in public harm and there's going to be a public health cost for this. But that cost gets higher when you're talking about kids. And that's a very bloodless way of thinking about it. But I, you know, Well, and the thing is, I would say I almost, you know, I I almost wish it were that bloodless, right? Because in some ways, if you were to just say, hey, look, you know, there's trade offs to these things and so be it, you know, that would be one thing. But I mean, to some extent, the the pandering to, uh, you know, the minority of people who, one, don't think COVID is a serious problem, despite the fact that our hospitals are almost at capacity, you know, and we've had, you know, more than 50,000 people in Texas die. Right. And that, you know, the idea that, you know, having to basically, you know, be slightly uncomfortable sometimes for the, you know, basically so as to keep our health system from collapsing and more Texans from dying is somehow, you know, you know, it's like, and the idea of pandering to this is that this this is a perfectly justifiable or rational point of view, given where we are, you know, it it emboldens people, you know, and it, you know, I said, I mean, there are very few Democrats right now who are sort of going to the left and say, you know, Hey, you guys who are totally locked up in your house and who aren't going anywhere and never plan to again, good move. Yeah. You know, that's right. I mean, it's almost the equivalent that there are more people on the right who are sort of in this space of, you know, trying to weigh personal liberty against public health. And I mean, you know, it's just. Well, and this gets us into, again, something that's abstract, but has a very, you know, I mean, liberty to, for what? Liberty right. to not be uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean that's liberty what we're to make other about. people, and and because of that, to make other people pay for your principled position. I mean it. You know, we've really lost sight of something here, and we'll you know it makes well, yeah. me sound like an old guy, but 
Well, no, well, but I mean, but, but I mean, the most abstract thing is actually the scariest, which is that because of our inability to just simply do some basic social distancing measures and you know vaccinate at higher rates, that we're giving the the virus the the time and the space to potentially mutate it again in a way that we're really going to regret in a in a terrible way. Right. And look, it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but we're providing it multiple opportunities to, and. You know, it's and this isn't like I mean, this isn't climate change. This isn't some abs. I mean, talking about abstract things. I mean, I think of climate change as like the ultimate kind of abstract issue because it's this you know it's science and it's worldwide and we all have to you know blah blah blah. This isn't nearly as abstract. You can look at the numbers in your community. You can look at what the hospital numbers are. You know, like wherever you live, well, and it's right there. If we had enough listeners to get mail, we'd get mail on that. But I do want to flag. I mean, there, there was also other news this week. Oh, other in, in a week of very <laughs> bad news. <laughs> about climate change, which is suggesting that has gotten much more immediate and much less abstract. But I think I, but you know, I think the, the, the point is well taken. So, you know, in terms of the politics of this in a, in an awkward transition to the legislature for the last <laughs> few minutes, you know, if you take the, res, you know, the resurgence of the pandemic mm-hmm. and the way that that is crowding a lot of things out on the public agenda right now, and you combine that with, you know, what is, you know, an ugly and intractable position, you know, situation right now, seemingly in the legislature in which, you know, since the last time we met for the podcast, Greg Abbott called the legislature back into special session for a second time. So they gaveled out the first special session on Friday, convened for this for the second special session on Saturday. Though there was some speculation that the agenda might get reduced, this wasn't the case. And in fact, in the governor's call for the special session, for the second special session, he actually expanded the agenda, added another, you know, there were some sub points there, you know, you could quibble, but, you know, somewhere between six and nine new items, depending on how you count them. Everybody was saying seven. And, you know, I think that was just a top bullet point. The Senate, you know, again, is moving legislation as of Tuesday, the House had yet to achieve the necessary two-thirds quorum, mainly as a result of still not attending Democrats, though some Democrats have come back. So, and a few Republicans weren't little, there, too. Just to, and a few Republicans weren't around, Republicans too. And a few Republicans, that, that, including at least one who's been quarantined for COVID, who missed the first day but came back, and that's, you know, not to be coy, that's State Rep Travis Clardy, who was a guest on the, on the podcast a month or so ago. Um, and he's doing fine health-wise. We hope um, he recovers. You know, but if you think then about these two things being really front and center on the political agenda in the state, these are not the issues that by all signals the governor and Republican candidates really wanted to be talking about as they pivoted from the regular legislative session into the 2022 campaign session. Like a lot of like a lot of national Republicans, but with a decidedly Texas twist. You know, the governor leaned hard into immigration and border security in the immediate aftermath of the session with his announcement that Texas, that he would be directing uh, the construction of a new wall in Texas. I mean, like like many of us who direct things, he was going to hire a project. He's going to hire a project manager. Right. You know, and, you know, more attention to policing and law and order, uh, discussion of both the Texas economy and and you know, even while pointing to the Biden administration as being spendthrift and socialist and wrecking the national economy. I mean, you know, the direction that the that the Republican political class in the state led by the governor wanted to move couldn't have been much more clear. 
Um, and that is not what's going on right now, given the pandemic, but also given, you know, the, the, the mess in the legislature where, you know, we've got a game of chicken in which while the Republican uh, majority and the Republican governing club, you know, sort of governing party seems to have gone in this with substantial strategic and tactical advantages, it seems like they've wound up in a fairly, in a, in a very intractable confrontation with Democrats. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there were a lot of people asking, you know, at the beginning of the, of the democratic exodus, like, you know, what's the end game? What's the point? And my, and my kind of thing has been, well, you know, I think regardless of whether they can achieve anything or whether we end up, you know, where the, where the Republican party wants at the end of this, regardless of what they do, they achieve dire- the direction of the discussion. And so at least for a brief period, you know, at least by Democrats being in Washington, the discussion became about voting rights. And you can see if Republicans in the state have made, you know, I've been saying multiple efforts from my, from my, my view of things have made multiple efforts to try to shift the conversation in a different direction, whether that's on the voting legislation in particular and trying to cast it as a bill that would expand voting access yes. as opposed to what Democrats have said about it. Or, you know, again, to even shift the conversation, you know, towards immigration or other issues where they feel comfortable on. The problem is, you know, for them at least is, you know, one, they've been unsuccessful really at shifting the discussion around the voting rights legislation. And part of that is, you know, state media, national media, and I think the Democrats still not being here. Two, COVID, you know, the, the COVID resurgence, you know, is just, I mean, it's, it brings up the quality of government services so directly. And governance you know? in a state in which one party undispu- indisputably owns governance. Well, and that's the thing. That's the other piece of this. So, and this is the thing that you and I were talking about, which is, you know, in a state in which one party indisputably owns governance, you know, there's sort of a, a question that comes up, which is, you know, with every special session that gets called on these other issues that have nothing to do with, with COVID uh, in particular, I would say, you know, does it just start to look like you're ineffectual? And, and to everybody, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I'd say definitely, you know, I mean, I, you know, there's a, there's a recursive feature to this, which is that, you know, part of, you know, we're saying that's primary politics has been driving a lot of this. We've been talking about, you know, Republican prior podcasts, primary politics, Republican primary politics. And to the extent that, you know, dissident, you know, leaders on the right who claim to speak for, you know, activated partisans have been criticizing the governor and legislative leaders for not being able to achieve a hundred percent of their aims well, then we get a special session and they still can't achieve 100% of their aims. Does it really matter that it's because Democrats aren't here? Yeah. I don't really think it does to the dissidents because of, you know, their ultimate goal is to make gain power and make, you know, and control, have their own control of the agenda. I mean, that's really the point here. Um, but I would also say more generally at some point, you know, doesn't it just start to look ineffective yeah. and ineffectual? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, the politics of this are very complicated because I think it, it's probably still an okay short term strategy going into the primaries, depending on how long, how much longer this lasts. Not, not, an un, not an unimportant consideration, but not irrelevant. And certainly, you know, I think changes the calculation that was shaping Republicans orientation up until, you know, up to this point, really, which was that they really didn't have to worry about the general election very much. Now, they may still not have to, given that there's still yeah. no Democratic gubernatorial candidate. It's still a midterm election with a Democrat right. president still, in the White you House. Know, it's not as if the whole terrain has shifted, but it's, it's introduced a lot more uncertainty into this environment, I think. 
Now, speaking of uncertainty, to be fair, the, you know, there have been some interesting things going on on the Democratic side since the Dem- since the second session was called, and you know, some fraction. I mean, it sounds like you know. I mean, I've seen different numbers about half of Democrats are no longer in DC or that were in DC or yeah, not they're there. unaccounted for. Yeah, there's some twenty <laughs> something there, and all this noise about a couple that you know went through on a planned vacation to Europe, apparently, all, you know, all these things. But I think the thing I really noticed was something that looked remarkably like the National Democrats when, you know, you had a few Democrats show up on the House floor on Monday and you had other Democrats from the progressive wing of the party showing up on Twitter and name checking and criticizing them as showing up to essentially, you know, I think this is a paraphrase, but, you know, to help to, to more or less, quote unquote, help Republicans carry out their voter suppression agenda, unquote. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, while we've seen grumbling and, and from the very beginning, we expected there to be some tension among Democrats. After all, it's a collective action problem to keep everybody on the same page on mm-hmm. the quorum break and leaving town and all this. But it was an outbreak of, of real open criticism and of some Democrats that are not unpopular in the caucus, uh, you know, Joe Moody, who had been pro tem, Mary Gonzalez from El Paso. Now, you know, these are both Democrats who are perhaps, you know, closer to the Republican speaker and to the, the Republican leadership in the House than, say, you know, the farther, you know, the more progressive Democrats who are issuing some of this criticism, uh, including mm-hmm. Gina Hinojosa from Austin. I can't remember the honestly, the other person I saw. But then this morning, as we were getting ready to, to record this, we had a, a coalition of progressive groups in Texas, including Planned Parenthood, Progress Texas, a few others that are active players in democratic politics, also come out and and essentially issue the same kind of criticism and, and, and urge Democrats to keep up the quorum break in order, you know, to not only stop the, the, you know, the election legislation that, you know, triggered this ostensibly, but also the other items that, you know, are, are very anathema to progressives that are on the governor's agenda, like, uh, you know, restricting, at, you know, uh, transgender athletes in, in their participation in sports. For, further abortion legislation. Further abortion legislation. Um Looks like a looks you like know, sort of a, a an quote attempt unquote, to limit pace. You know, I hate to, to utter the words critical race theory, but the you know curriculum basically curriculum limiting curriculum on racism in public schools. So it's a it's an interesting development that I think you know kind of raises the temperature on something where the temperature was already pretty high. Yeah, I mean you know if you take if you strip the labels for a second and just you know instead of thinking about Democrats and Republicans and just sort of think about you know aligning members, you know, along some sort of a, a spectrum in terms of, you know, who, who has, you know, play and cachet in the cash in the process and who doesn't, you know, right. some of that is obviously going to be, I mean, a lot of that's going to be directed by partisanship. Ultimately, most Republicans are going to have more say than most Democrats, but, but not all Republicans are going to have more play in the, in the process than all Democrats. Right. And so ultimately, you know, when you kind of look at that and you think about, you know, Democrats in Texas and, you know, again, Republican control the process, you know, there are Democrats who have done a good job representing their districts by having close ties with Republican legislators and being, you know, being given in some cases, you know, positions of power and authority that honestly the progressive Democrats who are, you know, throwing the stones in this case have not had and never will. Right. 
in a context in which, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, I always call this, you know, it's a very social, a repeated game, right? Each session is a game. So this is one game, but it's going to happen again. So when you play a repeated game, you have to think about how you play this time because it affects next time. And if you think about the people, you know, who, who might be making their way back, I mean, part of it is, you know, these are people who maybe have more to lose going into next time yeah. than the people who may look at this last session and say, what more could I lose? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a reasonable, you know, t- top level read of that. Yeah. And then I just also say the other piece of this too is again, I mean, nobody wants to live in a hotel for two months and, and especially nobody wants to live in a hotel in Washington DC in the summer for two months. Right. And every Democrat who leaves basically puts more pressure on the Democrats who are there not to be the next one, not to right. be the one who goes back and then provides a quorum. And so, yeah, and the, and the yeah, and, you know, and that's been a, you know, that's been a, a, a fact of this from the beginning. I mean, we talked about this link when this started that, you know, there's a very human dimension to this in yeah. terms of figuring out uh, people's behavior. So I think the, the last thing I want to point out here before we sign off is, you know, that this is continuing to radiate throughout the political process as, you know, you saw this fight inside the legislature, you know, the governor got involved in an explicitly, you know, war between the branches piece with his defunding of the leg- with his vetoing of the, the funding article, which effectively threatened to defund the legislature over the next biennium, you know, and now the courts are getting involved as both the members of the legislative and the executive branch are going into the state courts and suing for relief. And now, you know, different levels, of course, there were some early su- Democrats had early success in staying warrants against the, the quorum busting members, uh, the civil warrants that had been issued by the speaker. Uh, I think as of this morning or last night, uh, the Texas Supreme Court had weighed in and put issued a stay on that lower court. So, I mean, just as we, as we exit for today, I do want to point out, this is now... This this fire has now spread across all three branches of the of the executive of the of Texas government, even as the fight over COVID is a fight between state government in many ways, and increasingly a fight between state and local government. It's been that from the beginning, but that is really reaching a critical point. So what we've seen, what we're seeing now, is a Texas political system that is just incredibly conflict ridden at this moment. Um, not just between Democrats and Republicans, but that fight taking place across virtually the entire spectrum of Texas government from, you know, across the branches and from the state level down to school districts, cities, counties. So with that, I want to thank Josh for being here. Uh, we will thank uh, our crew in the liberal arts development studio on the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin, which I know is working hard right now. Missed a lot of uncertainty at the university caused once again by the Delta variant. And thanks to you for listening and be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 